You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Welcome everyone. This is Casey and I'm here with Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi. And we are your hosts of the Together in Literacy podcast. And today in season two, episode 10, we are diving into a hot topic in the education world, the science of reading, (laughs) what it is, what it isn't, and some cautions about buzzwords. But before we get started, we love to begin the show with a little review from our amazing listeners. We are incredibly grateful to each of you for tuning in, and we like to showcase your responses and answer some of your questions in our episodes. Today's feedback comes from Maria Z, and she just says, I just finished listening to your podcast on incorporating writing into structured literacy lessons, and it was so helpful and absolutely perfect timing. So thank you, Maria, for that feedback. We're so glad that you were able to take some of the information from our podcast and put it into your uh, lessons. That's always one of the things we hope that people are able to take away from our conversation. So thank you for tuning in. And that was, let's see, Casey, that was season two, episode eight. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode on writing, definitely uh, check that out. All right. That was a good one. That was filled with some helpful tips there. It was. All right. So before we get into discussing science of reading, more than a buzzword, uh-huh. uh, let's talk about trends. I want you to think about the word trend. And you may want to jot down or just think about some common trends that have uh, sort of impacted you and maybe in your personal life over the years. And Casey and I were having some fun conversations (laughs) about trends. So we all know that, oh gosh, maybe about like eight to 10 years ago, there was a trend among our lovely children and students, and that was the floss dance. Oh, yes. And um, I know many teachers are probably really happy that the floss dance trend (laughs) has fallen by the wayside a little more, but it was really, really popular and it was very trendy among our kids. They all wanted to do the floss dance. And you know what? It was so timely, especially if you were trying to teach the floss rule it was like oh all right so maybe it's acceptable we can do the floss dance when we're learning the floss rule right yeah yeah but think about other trends you know back in the 80s oh my gosh big 80s hair do we want dating ourselves emily do we (laughs) want that to make a big comeback (laughs) probably not i know some people would love it though 
let's think of some other 80s trends like the cabbage patch doll oh my gosh mm, yes. i had a couple of those me too right? and what a trend that was just to get your hands on one was really difficult so 80s trends for casey and i are always kind of fun to talk about because we um both kids of the 80s <laughs> yeah we're kind of aging ourselves here but that's okay and we're talking about how our kids sort of see our own kids see the 80s the way we saw the 1950s yeah which was really exciting to us I think back in the 80s talking about the 1950s and poodle skirts and everything was really really fun and now my kids are very interested in hearing about the 1980s. What was it like, mom, mm-hmm. to go the 1980s? So lots of fun things, right? Lots of fun toys and, and TV shows and movies and songs and so forth. When we think about trends, though, trends have a way of just going viral. They become super popular practically overnight. Mm-hmm. And they spread like wildfire, right? They just seemingly it's like everybody knows about it everybody wants that one thing or wants to wear that one thing or has to go see this thing or listen to this song and so trends just pick up popularity really really quickly but when we're talking about trends in education do they follow that same popularity pathway do they pick up at breakneck speed or do they kind of take longer to gain popularity, but then kind of fizzle out. Like right now, floss dance really isn't popular anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Big 80s hair, it's not like some people probably may have it. No offense to anybody that loves it. You know what? You do you. But (laughs) that's not really the most popular hairstyle I don't think right now. But when we think about trends in education, they take a little bit longer, I think, to come up in into classrooms. And then they ha- do have a way, I think, of sort of fading out, but they take longer to go away. Yeah. When we talk about the science of reading, we don't want to see that terminology, that term, as a buzzword or a trend. Right. It is not synonymous with any of the popular trends that we may see in uh, our culture or even in classroom. It's really unlike something I would say we have seen before. And so instead of calling it a trend, we some people see it more of a dynamic change or movement that has come about into education due to the ability to spread awareness and research in new ways, uh, particularly online. So what's the big push for the science of reading? What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about how it's become more mainstream. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. People are talking about it all the time. And if people aren't talking about it, maybe if you aren't hearing about it, maybe in your school, your classroom, you will. And as more people become aware of the decades, and because it's not new, this isn't new, all right? To some people it is. And more in-depth research and reviews, we want to be so, so careful that 
this term, the science of reading, isn't thought of as a buzzword. I'm just going to put this out here. When we say the terminology whole language, think about the feelings you have around that term. Kesu, there's like there are a lot of people who have negative feelings when they hear that term whole language, mm-hmm. right? But it was what I considered a trend in education. I don't see the science of reading as a trend or a buzzword. And so Casey and I want to talk about that today with all of you. So we're going to break it down to five things that the science of reading is, that it's not, and give you some recommendations of things that you may want to take action on. I spent a lot of time talking, Casey. You're (laughs) good. It was long. You were were in it. You were in it. (laughs) I'm out. I love that you brought up, you know, the idea of trends. And I think in education, sometimes we do, we're all, we all want the best for our kids and we want our kids to find success. And so sometimes, and I know I've done this too, chasing that new shiny object, right? We want to, what can I do that's going to get my kids where they need to be, right? And that's just kind of human nature, right? We all want the the quick fix, the, the easy task, but I have to tell you the science of reading is not a quick fix because the science of reading is not a program. It's not one specific thing, but it's really this collection of research about reading and learning and the brain. And this research is not new, as Emily said, right? We have decades of research around this. So when we understand what the science of reading is referring to, it really can deepen our knowledge base about how we should be teaching, why we should be teaching these certain things and what we need to do. Um, And so I really like to refer to it as a journey about how we best learn and help all of our students find success. And I think if we shift our, our mindset into thinking about it as a journey, it's something that we're continuing on. It's a path. It's we're growing. We're, we're leaning into new things instead of it just being like a quick fix, because that's certainly not what it is. Okay. Yeah. So it and takes... I think one of the, I'm sorry, Casey, no. one of the things, if we could perhaps think of goals after you listen to this episode, we, Casey and I really hope that you'll broaden your understanding about the term itself, because yeah. it, it doesn't just talk about reading. And we'll get into that. Yes. (laughs) All right. So let's (laughs) dive into then five things that the science of reading is. All right. Number one, the science of reading is decades of research. Okay. So we have decades of research on learning, on reading instruction, on dyslexia. Um, Emily and I went into Orton Gillingham and the principles, and there's a great deal of research that, and that's like a hundred years old. So <laughs> check that out in season one. So, you know, for those of us who have been on this path for some time, I'm incredibly grateful that there's this wave of excitement surrounding the science of reading, but we want to also understand that this is certainly rooted in research. It is, it is based in a lot of different disciplines of research coming together, talking about what we know about how the brain learns and that it's not anything particularly new. 
per se in the research world. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, and if you really are curious about you know, where to find this research, you know, feel free to um, reach out to us and we can include some of the books or articles that you may be interested in, in mm-hmm. finding that research. Because I know there are some people out there that you know, they're trying to have these conversations with their school admin yeah. and it may feel super brand new to them. And they may just not be aware that all that research has been out there for so long. Yeah. And, and that the reason is because it's just easier to access information now and people are disseminating it differently. Yeah. Whereas in the past, it might've been you know, in a book, on a shelf, in a store, in a library, you know, maybe one professor recommended that you read it. And now we are just in an age of information that is spreading so much more rapidly. It is. And, and and I think with that, then that's why also we want to make sure that we're mindful of of the research that we're reading and, and really looking at that as well. I was actually pulled out my national reading panel book. Emily, do you remember that? From I have one. I have two of them and they're like, I have it. You wouldn't believe. But the research there is still relevant. So you can pull out the national reading panel. Perhaps your school district has it. Um, I think you can even access it online now. I mean, it's huge, but it is chock full of research that is directly related to reading instruction. So, yeah. So, I mean, if you just want to grab one right away, yeah, you can access the whole national reading panel doc online. Um, But yeah, I do have, I do have the actual book. Me too. (laughs) It's in pretty good shape. It might all right. well. <laughs> yeah. All right. So number two, the, the so we're going through a list of what um, of five things science of reading is. So we just did decades of research. All right. Number two, it's all components of literacy. Mm-hmm. So um, we have discussed the different aspects of of, of structured literacy um, as we see them through the lens of Orton Gillingham and its principles, and all of the parts of literacy as they relate to the five pillars of reading so uh, we're not just talking about you know phonics and, and phonemic awareness here all right there's there are other aspects of fluency vocabulary and writing and so forth that we are all sort of coming together to create literate and fluent accurate readers that can comprehend and that can write and communicate this is all through on i think under a larger umbrella of language, mm-hmm. not just learning to read. Okay. And when we're talking about language, both oral, so the spoken language and the written language. Yes. All right. So that was number two. All right. Number three, the science of reading is relating to research on learning. Yes. Emily's over here cheering. So um, (laughs) I Uh think oftentimes we kind of get pigeonholed into thinking of, you know, science of reading, but Emily Mm. brought this up so beautifully. She's like, I really wish we could change it to the science of learning. And I I really do. I totally agree because if we really look at the research, yes, there's research that's targeted on reading instruction, but there's also research targeted on what the brain is doing when we're learning on, on the impacts of executive function skills. Um, there's so much that goes into learning that is beyond just 
the reading pieces. So when we're talking about this, right, we're looking at the research on explicit and direct instruction, right, and the implications of that in learning and not looking at that in comparison to constructivist or discovery lessons, right? And looking at what the research really tells us is best for students. Yeah, when we think about like some of our explicit and direct instruction authors out there, like Anita Archer, mm -hmm. she has really lovely, you know, in a beautiful way, laid out a framework of explicit and direct instruction that can be used in all subject areas. Yeah, not just in teaching reading. And so, yes, I, I said to Casey, I'm like, I really do wish that this was a broader term called science of learning so that we can see that, yes, this is not just about teaching reading here. It's really looking very, very closely at how the brain works best. And you know what I love is that we're seeing even more research coming out into the mainstream on two things, on working memory mm -hmm. and on cognitive load theory. And yeah. those are both super important when we're not only dealing with people who are challenged learners in your classrooms, but just right. in general with how we learn and retain information. Yes. So I think that, yeah, I think we, we've got to advocate, I think, for a little bit of a change to that term, but it's not there yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here we are. Number four in the list of things science reading is. Number four, science of reading is dynamic. Yes. It's not static. It's mm -hmm. dynamic as anything in scientific research. So what we are saying, what we are reading in research is based off of what we currently have, right, in 2023. Mm -hmm. However, with the understanding that there are always new research studies out there and that things are ever-changing and evolving. And so that's exciting. It's not something to be afraid about, afraid of, right? Right. Exactly. It's where, you know, because things in education are ever changing. And I know I hear the old terminology, oh, everything in education is cyclical. If you teach long enough, it's going to come rolling back around the bend again. But in this case, I think it's much deeper than that. Do we want the same methods rolling back around or do we want to look at the new and advanced research that we're given and see how we can apply that into our classroom and our teaching methods? Right. And and being someone who has been in education for a while, yeah. there are certain things that come back, but they don't come back in the same way. And we always yeah. want to then look at, okay, yeah, I taught phonemic awareness back in the 90s, but I didn't do it in a way that research is showing now where it benefits to link letters right away. I, I did it, you know, the old, where we only, where it was so isolated. I didn't bridge it to my other instructional components. So now looking at new research, I know what to do to, to better that, right? And I think if we come back to the idea that teaching is a craft, mm. teaching is something that we're always improving upon, then we can pull the research in to help us 
really develop and hone our craft as educators. Great point. All right. Oh, Casey's got number five. Oh, number five. Well, I kind of already <laughs> the beans on number five because I was just so excited about it. But I, number five, okay. <laughs> we're talking about, you know, the science of reading is broad in scope, meaning that it is not just phonics and phonemic awareness, right? Which often is what is talked about, but it encompasses all components of language and literacy and learning. And again, this is when Emily and I were saying, like, let's start to change some of that narrative into the science of learning and broaden that scope. And when, if we did change the narrative to sort of the science of learning, imagine how that would spread into our math instruction, into our content areas, right? Science and social studies, language is infused in those subject areas all the time. So if we broaden that scope even more, I think that we could really see some amazing things happening in our classrooms, not just calling it science of reading. Right. All right. (laughs) So here we go. Part two. Five things the science of reading is not. And the Mm. first one is, and I think we sort of alluded to this a tiny bit already, but science of reading is not a pendulum swing. Now that is a super common term that you hear among educators that, oh, it's just going to come back around again. Mm -hmm. But no, because once again, it's the research has become more available to in education. People are choosing methods, programs, resources that are based off of this science so that they can drive change in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. Because for all too long, we have had a pod or a population of children, students in our classrooms that have not made progress. And I say this all the time, especially on social media, the urgency is greater than ever. The time is now. Yeah. We really have quite a problem with reading proficiency in our, in, you know, in the United States alone. And I know we, uh, this podcast is listened to all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, but here in the United States, it's a serious problem. And so yeah. if we're going to call the science of reading a pendulum swing, then that means not much is going to change. Well, and we, and we don't see it that way. We don't. And and not only that, it also shows when, when I hear people say that it's a pendulum swing, it shows to me that perhaps there is a misunderstanding about what happens in the brain when we learn to read, because that doesn't change. That is set. We understand what it is that is necessary in order to create these new circuitry systems. And that is not a pendulum swing. So if we come back to the research, right, this is not something that's going to necessarily, it's not going to go away as neuroscience has, has started to bridge into reading instruction. And we know about the brain and we know about what's working and what needs to happen that directly impacts what we are teaching with our students. And that is relating and connecting to explicit and systematic instruction. So it is not a pendulum swing. And, and when you have people that perhaps say that to you, it really, it may open a door for conversations about 
the brain and what's happening when we're learning to read. Right. Absolutely. All right. Okay. So other things that the science of reading is not, it is not a program. <laughs> so Emily, I hear this one a lot. I think this is a hurdle, a problem for us in education because people are using science of reading on, on, on certain programs. And we have to have an understanding just as we do when we see Orton Gillingham or OG put on something, they're not programs. Um, instead, you know, Orton Gillingham is a set of principles, guiding principles that we use. And in the science of reading, that is the collection of research about what we know is needed to help students unlock the reading code. So the science of reading, just as Orton Gillingham, it is not a program. Right. And if you listen to the episodes on the Ortonian prescription from season mm -hmm. one, we had two, two, we have two of those. If you look at those principles in the Ortonian prescription that we broke down, those were created many, many years ago. Yeah. And if you look at them, they are still backed by what we are advocating for even today in 2023. Yes. And so you'll see this alignment between, you know, the research and structured literacy, which is how we are implementing the research within our classrooms and Orton Gillingham. So if we, you know, if we're looking for that alignment or how to actually bridge that into practice, you can, can learn more about that on those episodes, but just know that they're not programs. So. And, and those episodes were a really deep dive into Orton. Yes. So I highly recommend listening to those to see where Casey and I are coming from. Okay. Those were good. All right. <laughs> and so not a program. Yes. Number three for the five things that science of reading is not. Number three is science of reading is not just more phonics. So we see this sort of a straw man argument a lot um, made by some very popular people, very successful people in education. And when we say that the science of reading, you know, is just, it's, it's a more of a push for phonics, phonics first, mm -hmm. that really does show a, a deep lack of understanding about uh, the five pillars about what structured literacy um, is, in, you know, really uh, incorporates at the heart of literacy. I say this so much in these episodes is language, yeah, and that is not just simply our phonics instruction. And so, when we have, you know, there are so many teachers out there right now that are getting trained, you know, with like letters and OG and so forth, and mm -hmm. and that's wonderful we have to keep in mind that we look at a broader scope of what structured literacy and a structured literacy approach is. And we have several episodes on this that you can be listening to, but we, in our Orton Gillingham lessons alone, it's never just about like pushing more phonics or more PA. Sure, our students need those things because they're at an intervention level, right. but 
we are always incorporating aspects of language development at multiple points. We know that our readers need explosive instruction. We're connecting speech sounds to print. And so we do need that phonics instruction, but that is not the only thing in structured literacy. Right. And I think when I hear the comments being made about, oh, it's just more phonics or, oh, like the students, you know, we need to teach comprehension. Again, I go back to the research on understanding about the brain and how we actually learn how to read and the connection between our speech sounds to the print, to the meaning. And yes, we all have the same goal to have our students comprehend. But what we need to understand is that comprehension and that systematic phonics instruction, that word recognition, if we go back to Marangoff, their simple view of reading, we have to have both of those pieces. And when we look deeper at structured literacy and what the research is actually saying, it is talking about including all of those pieces. So I think when people say, you know, oh, well, it's just more phonics and perhaps that, that opens some doors to have conversations about how we actually learn to read and what is actually needed in order to have strong comprehension. You know, if we look at Scarborough's reading rope and it breaks down those elements so beautifully, you can clearly see it's not just phonics that's on that reading rope, right? To lead to proficient readers. So I think it opens the door for some conversations to be had about what it is that we need to make sure we have in our, in our lessons. And I think what trips people up sometimes is that, you know, we have a lot of um, educators who may, might not be aware of phonics to the level that's needed. So it's very new to them. Right. And the other thing is we also have to understand that novice readers are going to need more explicit instruction in connecting those speech sounds to print. You're going to see this development or this, this tapering off of the, the high structured phonics as our students gain proficiency, as they become more automatic in their word recognition. Um, and there's research behind that about, you know, the level, the amount of time needed in first grade versus third grade in your phonics instruction, right? And so we have all this research behind this, but when, when people kind of stand on that idea that, oh, well, it's just more phonics that they're talking about, that it really just shows a need to have more conversations and, and a deeper understanding about what it means to actually teach someone to read. And how, and what that looks like in the framework of the classroom. Yeah. And maybe we need to have a future episode, you know, talking about the aspects of a structured literacy lesson. We I think I wrote that. that. Sure. Yes, I'm pretty sure I wrote that, that down on our list. <laughs> yes, yeah, we should. Yeah. All right, we'll put okay. it down, y'all. Okay, so we have our things that that science of reading is not. It's not a pendulum swing. It is not a program. It is not just more phonics, and it is number four. It is not a term that we should use loosely in marketing materials or resources or curriculums, right? So we want to make sure that, you know, if we're thinking about the science of reading, that it really is rooted in research. So because the science of reading is that body of work, it's not copyright, right? Just like Orton Gillingham, we want to make sure that if we're consumers 
that we're being very mindful and we are asking questions as we look at purchasing curriculums for our schools or resources or things like that. We want to, you know, kind of see how does that, how are the materials connected to research those resources and things like that. So just being mindful consumers. Yeah. I think we have to be careful when that term is sort of put in loosely for terms of marketing or be into things people are selling. Yeah. So we are stat number four in the list is sort of a cautionary term. Yes. That we're looking very carefully and asking questions. We're looking at the backgrounds and the trainings of the people who've created these resources and the research behind it and whether it really does support what the current research is saying about reading. Yeah. So just just sort of that's more of like a cautionary one for all of you listening. All right. And number five. So this is the fifth thing science of reading is not. And this sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about perhaps we need to think about it broader and change this to the science of learning mm-hmm. rather than the science of reading. And it says the science of reading is not rooted in feelings. We have discussions, we have book groups, we have lots of online comments mm-hmm. about how reading should be taught. Yeah. And those feelings, those big feelings become very personal. And why? It's because we're working with human beings, right? Yeah. It, with something that's very personal. Mm-hmm. So when we attach these very deep feelings to the way we are teaching, then when someone comes to maybe challenge that, how do you feel? Right. Feels uncomfortable. Feels like, well, well, I've been doing it so long this way and it's been working out great. Or maybe just sort of want to close the door and look the other way. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to be really careful that this is not about a situation where we're discussing our feelings. It's about the pedagogy. It's about the research. And that it requires, I think, us as educators to be open yeah, and willing to look carefully at what we do and make changes where necessary. Mm-hmm. And that can be difficult because you may work in a district that wants to make all these changes and you're feeling like, oh gosh, there's just not enough hours in the day, or I just don't feel supported, or I just haven't gotten enough training. And we're going to get into some things that you can do for a call to action. Like, you know, we, we, Casey and I have both been classroom teachers. We know what that's like when you feel those pressures, but you as an educator, we're really just advocating that where you um, remain open. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, this is never to, to blame teachers or, or things like that. And I think, you know, as we learn and as we grow, I think that's one of the reasons why I always refer to it as a journey and that education truly is a craft because that means, look, we're, we're continuing 
to increase our knowledge. We're continuing to refine practices. We're shifting things that no longer serve our students, right? We're getting rid of those things that don't work based on research. And we're incorporating new things that do. And when we when we can think about it as a journey and think about it as, you know, refining a craft, it can take away that personal piece, right? This isn't about you as a person. This is about growing and learning. <laughs> and, and just that the, all the things that we want for our students to do, we can give ourselves that same grace as well as we lean into research and we start to really um, shift some of our practices. Right. And sometimes these, when you're really deeply rooted in feelings about how reading should be taught, it may be based on, you know, you may have had that one person out there that wrote that book or taught that course or, or conducted that workshop that you attended that just felt life-changing to you. Yeah. Right. You went to it, you read it, you listened to them. And it was like, everything they said felt like it was speaking to you right and so we get that we get that that you know we we in education i think really in lots of areas of our lives we follow the people that really speak to us mm-hmm. and and really understand us and know where we're coming from and and all of that so but i do yeah. think we need to look much more carefully when it comes to teaching reading and making sound decisions. I I agree. And I think, you know, thinking back to my early years of teaching, right. And I was doing, I was following what I was being told and, and because they, my kids would come to me in the fall and they leave in the spring. And I, you know, those kids that were behind, I was like, well, they'll, they'll get caught up, right. They'll get Mm -hmm. caught up. And when I moved into a position where I was working as the interventionist, I got to see those kids tracking and they didn't get caught up with the practices that we were doing. And now in private practice, I really get to see those kids that fall through the cracks. So sometimes in education, we might see just this little group of students in front of us. And so it seems like, oh, it's, it's just a tiny number. But the tracking of those students um, is real. And so while it may, it may feel that previous practices that we were doing were working for almost everybody in the class, if we don't see that long-term impact, we might not realize that the negative impacts that it was having on students and that a lot of those kids who perhaps looked like they were on target in the younger grades in third grade fell out or in fourth grade fell out. And I think our national reading scores speak to that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for us to, you know, kind of be reflective and mindful and to just sort of be willing to, to look at what changes we can make for our students. Yeah, and I think Casey and I have been in unique positions in the sense that we've both been classroom teachers and now we both work at the intervention level and we're seeing students that are several years behind yeah not just one year no we see them several years behind and there are some serious things going on there and we're Mm -hmm. not just talking about the academic piece 
a lot of social emotional things come along with being two, three, even more years behind. And for us, yeah, because of that, because of the positions we're in now, we do have big feelings about that, (laughs) which is one of the reasons for this podcast. (laughs) So um, we just really want to just spread the message that, you know, once again, the urgent, there's never been greater urgency and the time is now. Yeah. Okay. So if we're looking then at what can we do, right? If we have like our own personal call to action, like, okay, Emily and Casey, I hear you. Like, I'm ready. Like, what should I do? So there's a couple of things that we feel are action steps that can be made. The first one is a book group. There's book groups online. I know Emily has led some. You can do book groups with your colleagues in your school. That's a really great way to have like a professional learning community where you have a book and you have conversations and talk about putting some action um, plans into place. So book groups are a great, great place to begin your journey. Yeah. And, you know, I always recommend the book group because from on a, uh, from a personal perspective, that's one of the reasons that that was one of my big reasons for change was from a book group when, when I had first read Overcoming Dyslexia. Mm-hmm. So that I thought really drove quite a bit of change. It really opened my eyes to what dyslexia actually is and really prompted me to want to learn more and to get proper training. Yeah. And All I right. think books are a great place because you, you're yeah. not going to be able to learn everything about the science of reading right away. I'm still learning and I'm what, 15, six, I mean, how many I've been a therapist for 15 plus years. So, and I'm still learning, right? Like we are all on this journey and we might be at different points, but we're all on this journey together. So don't feel like you have to know it all right away. That's just not a reality. And a book and a book group obviously is a much deeper dive than like scrolling through social media. Sure. Social media and, and, you know, like those science of reading, there might be certain groups out there on this particular subject. And, but as they are, keep in mind, social media, it has people scrolling. It's just a scroll. It's seconds that people might see a quick tip or a quick win. But a book group is going to really prompt you, really invite you to look much more deeply and have discussions that are meaningful and that out of these discussions comes, I think, real action, which is why this is our first call to action. (laughs) All right. So number two, and that is to check out your local chapter of the International Dyslexia Association or your local chapter of the Decoding Dyslexia Group. Now, these are organizations that have been real drivers of change. Mm-hmm. And sure, from the lens of dyslexia advocacy, they have really done so much good work out there from legislation to yeah. developing knowledge and practice standards, which I encourage everybody to please read. That is a big document on the IDA website. We should all be apprising ourselves of the knowledge and practice standards mm-hmm. for structured literacy. And we really just, I think, are, Casey and I, as a, on a personal note, are so grateful to these groups and these organizations 
that can bring people together, not just educators, but also parents, caregivers, and just create that bridge. Um, The IDA is going to really just offer so, so much, you know, from research articles to training, to learning about events, their annual conference, there's just so much. So that is a great uh, place to go. Yes. And to kind of springboard off those, I know a lot of the decoding dyslexia chapters on the International Dyslexia Association, and then also their individual chapters also have a lot of training um, options. And within that, they are going to have qualified trainers. So one of the things that we also recommend is that we check training credentials and background before making decisions on PD and resources. And that's not to say that there aren't some wonderful educators that are, you know, on the journey and can offer a great deal of information. It's just that we want to make sure that our knowledge is really, we're being taught by someone who has a depth of knowledge that's necessary in the research and in understanding literacy and understanding dyslexia. So taking a look at credentials and, and that's okay to ask about those and to ask about different trainings that people have had. Um, I know Emily and I have spoken about this before, but you know, If someone says that they have, you know, OG training, there's different levels of that. So we want to just kind of be mindful of, of what it is that we're seeking when we're looking for training and, and who we're seeking that information from. Right. And Casey and I will have a couple of different opportunities that you can check for at the very end of this episode we'll discuss. And all right, number four call to action, and that is. If you do find a well-researched article um, or a study, a blog post, where for me personally, blog posts, I really try to see as the place where, sure, there's some research, but it's really practice. It's, it's putting things into action. And podcasts, like this one, <laughs> but sharing those things with colleagues in the admin, maybe we get like a little group email together to say, oh my gosh, this article really spoke to me. I think we should all, I would love it if you just, you know, get a chance to read it. Or maybe if the admin's running the next staff meeting and they're looking for a helpful article to have like a little group discussion about, maybe put a little bug in their ear to say, you know what? I think this one would be really, really great. And here's why. So sure, does that take a little, is that a little bit of risk taking there for you? Sure is. But if we are looking to sort of grow these, plant these seeds, not just toss some breadcrumbs because those get scattered everywhere. We're going to talk about planting those little seeds. Then this is one way you can definitely do that. Okay. Absolutely. And then the last call to action is that, you know, we really encourage you to commit to making those small changes in your teaching, but really knowing that the research is so big, (laughs) it's so big, you guys. So just start with one aspect at a time. You don't have to try to do everything all at once. You will burn out. You will get frustrated. Take one piece at a time and put that into place. So Base that decision maybe off of your assessment data, right? Your your screening tools, those things that you know your students need and make those changes, okay? Again, we're, we're honing our craft and part of that is sh- making those shifts and those changes in our instruction based on the research. So we really encourage you to, to do that. 
again, when you focus on just one thing at a time, then it's exciting because you can really choose the particular things that you're going to implement that will hopefully be drivers of change in, in your data and in your student performance, but it also opens the door to more things. So it's sort of like, okay, we're addressing this one area, but that means we have to go back at like, if we're talking like, oh, if you thought your goal was like fluency, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's not just about fluency, <laughs> a lot of other things. So that means looking really carefully at your assessment data. If you are one of these people that's in this position, like, okay, I'm ready. I want to, I want to start and do this one thing at a time then we need to think about the screening tools that you have in place. Do you have Mm -hmm. screening tools? And it also mean that you need some more training, right? And that means going to find out what your admin can perhaps reimburse and send you to an offer. There's a lot of great training out there. So, and if you have any questions about where to get started, certainly reach out to us. All right. So those were the five calls to action things that we thought really would be meaningful. So we talked about the five things that science of reading is, talked about the five things the science of reading is not, and then five calls to action. So we had five, 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 right? There we go. (laughs) So now we would love to hear from you, but just want to remind you that we always have our show notes and links and things to the podcast episodes, but we always have a blog post that aligns with each episode. And it's great. It always sort of summarizes what we talked about, but just provides a nice little uh, foundation and some helpful links and so forth. So definitely check out the blog post for this. This would be for episode 10 Mm -hmm. of the Together in Literacy podcast. Casey and I just, you know, we've, we've sort of sprinkled in here and there this discussion of of training, of, of checking credentials and finding quality training that you know can really benefit you, benefit your teaching, benefit your students, right? So um, Casey has one opportunity that she's going to discuss that you really may want to seriously consider. And we know right now it's like February, 2023, mm-hmm. but this is really prime time to start thinking about these things. And then I'll go through mine. Go ahead, All Casey. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> As we've talked about with the different types of training that are available, and we get that question quite often, I have a certified academic language therapist cohort. We're starting our next cohort and it's a two-year program. It is very intense, but you will be a certified academic language therapist, which is a dyslexia therapist after the two years course, and you can earn college credit, graduate degree credit through the course with me as well, but you can get more information. The applications are actually open for our summer cohort. Um, and you can get all of that information at the dyslexiaclassroom.com. And I'll put the link to all of the information for that cohort in the show notes as well. All right. So that is one really amazing training opportunity that I, I truly would say is a gift to what, to not only to you and your training, but to your students too. So definitely look more uh, carefully at that and reach out to Casey if you have any questions. Yes, please do. Uh, yeah. And Casey's like, 
Yeah, so awesome. I mean, who who wouldn't want to train with her, right? <laughs> You're so sweet. And and then um, so I have the Building Readers for Life Academy, which is a monthly membership. So what we're I was trying to do was offer a couple of things: some more flexibility and professional development, but to also consolidate it to put all to give you all of your options for learning and growing as an educator or put them all in one place. And we're not just talking about reading. We're talking about all aspects of structured literacy and the science of reading, but also we're getting into topics like writing and learning and ADHD, executive function, uh, morphology. We have a whole calendar of speakers mapped out for 2023. And if you want to learn more to join, there's a monthly or an annual plan, and you can see it at buildingreadersperlife.com. All right. So That's check that cool. out. And those links will be in the show notes as well. Yeah. And um, it has a great lineup of speakers coming to that. So cannot wait. And yes, we're still doing the summer event, but we wanted to offer it um, all year round because we know some people that that timing might not always work out for them. Yeah. We don't have a question from a listener today. However, we did have one that we're planning to bring a guest on for. And that was one about finding the best methods for people with dyslexia in areas of math. And I know we have not really addressed math at all on here. To be perfectly honest, I love teaching math. I really do. I kind of miss it sometimes. (laughs) I like putting on my math hat. I really Mm -hmm. do. Um, but I'm really not going to be leading this episode or, or being the guest speaker. We're going to find somebody that really speaks from the lens of multisensory math, which is yeah. a really interesting subject area to look at. And we've got a few people in mind. So keep in mind that topic that we are planning it. Uh, we don't have a date for it yet, but it's in the works. Yes. Make sure you tune in. Okay. All right. So thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget to please rate the podcast, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and we will see you soon. Bye everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.